Hello and welcome back to the Arsenal One Game at a Time podcast with your host Dylan. I hope you had a good New Year's, got to spend some time with family or perhaps some time relaxing. I certainly had a good one and it was getting even better for the first 50 odd minutes of the Arsenal game against Man City, but unfortunately we fell to a crushing 2-1 loss. Uh, but not one where we've, you know, laid down and accepted defeat before kickoff, but one where before a couple of decisive moments were the better team against arguably the best team in world football. Going into the game, I was, you know, trying to be optimistic and uh, that optimist in me was saying that we could get a draw, but deep down I, I thought City would probably turn us over, so my expectations were not too high. So based on those initial expectations, I probably shouldn't be too disappointed at the result or too surprised, but it's the way the match played out that means the loss is definitely tougher to stomach because we had the lead for 55 minutes or so and we looked comfortable. And then even when a win looked out of the realms of possibility after we had a man down, uh, after Gabriel got sent off, we were resolute and it felt like we could walk away with at least a draw. But that dissipated with a Rodri winner in the 92nd minute of the game. A painful, painful way to lose. And whilst it is bitterly disappointing to lose in that manner, the lads were phenomenal. And this match fills me with hope and anticipation for our next games and has me dreaming again as an Arsenal fan. Unfortunately, the great football that we witnessed was marred with refereeing inconsistencies and the use of VAR or VAR, which takes away from chat about how good the game was, and rather we end up in a Groundhog Day scenario where baffling decisions are made time and time again. Ahead of the game, you know, we had been told that Mikel Arteta would be missing as a result of testing positive to COVID-19, and I'll be honest, I was a little anxious with that because often, you know, he gets labelled with the overcoaching tag in that he's constantly shouting instructions at the players, but... I think his presence has been key in keeping the team in check and, you know, just making sure they know exactly what they need to be doing. And against Man City, I think that's important. But in place of Arteta was Arsenal's assistant coach, Albert Stuyvenberg, who manned the touchlines instead. Uh, the lineups for the team were as many expected, and I was very happy to see Tommy Yasu back in the starting lineup. For Man City, they were you know, basically at full strength with just a few players missing in Foden and Zinchenko. With Foden out, they still had quality replacements in Jesus since you know Foden has played that false nine role a number of occasions. But Zinchenko was definitely a miss for them and I thought it would be a great matchup for Saka against Ake, which it ultimately proved to be. Uh, before I touch on you know, some of the contentious decisions made, I do want to give the team praise because ahead of the game I just wanted to see us put a fight put up a fight and not roll over and we not only did that but we really took it to City and were the better side for the first you know 55 odd minutes of the game uh, before the sending off we looked like we had a clear plan from the get-go which was when defending and out of possession we stayed in a compact 4-4-2 with Odegaard and Lacazette the players furthest forward and the wingers in Saka and Martinelli tucking in and staying narrow. But when we got the ball, we sprung forward effectively with Saka and Martinelli spreading out and hugging the touchline and making direct runs, taking on their fullbacks. And Saka and Martinelli both had huge success up against Ake and Cancelo respectively. 
A player that I thought was exceptional today was Thomas Partey. I had a look at his heat map after the game, and the guy was just all over the pitch, tackling, getting an interception, and progressing the ball brilliantly. Whilst Jacker was alongside Partey at times, when Jacker did press up high, Partey was essentially operating in a single pivot, which can be risky against City, but he managed to deal with everything that they threw at him. And when he recovered possession, he was able to breeze past the Man City midfielders at times and dominated a midfield which had Kevin De Bruyne, Bernardo Silva and Rodri in it, which is quite something. Uh, Tommy Asu, I thought, also was very, very good. He came back from an injury and you maybe wouldn't have blamed him for a lack of match sharpness, but the way he was playing, you certainly would not have guessed that he was coming back from an injury. He won all his aerial duels, made some key passes when under pressure, and was just ever-present, really, and managed to neutralise Raheem Sterling, who has been one of the most informed players in the Premier League recently. Uh, For the first 55 minutes or so, our entire defence, in fact, stood up to the challenge and looked rock-solid. City did not have a single shot on target in the first half. I mean... That is quite astounding with the you know fun- offensive output and talent that they have at their disposal. And I know with the result in the end, that doesn't mean much, but let me revel in it, please. Uh, and yes, yeah, City had you know the lion's share of the possession in the first half, but they were not creating clear-cut chances. The few notable ones I remember being Sterling's whip cross into Diaz, where Ramsdale was sort of caught in no man's land, and un- unfortunately for us, Diaz put it wide, and... You know, also in that half, I think Man City nearly caught us out in transition, uh, but the pass from Jesus to KDB came a bit too late. I thought Ben White also had a very good game. He made some smart recovery plays and interceptions, and his passing range was on full display with some, you know, delightful chip balls to Tomiyasu. A number of times he pressed into midfield, and we got a number of turnovers through that pressure in midfield, even early into the second half. Before we scored our first goal of the game, we did look very threatening. The positioning of Odegaard in between Man City's midfield and defence meant that he found himself with a lot of space to operate in, particularly when Rodri and Bernardo Silva pressed up high, as they did on a number of occasions. And there was a moment where a Xhaka pass beat Man City's press, finding Odegaard with lots of space to run into, and he played the ball in between the lines to Saka, who took on Ake and delivered a cutback, but we just didn't have enough Arsenal shirts in the box. Uh, from then on, we just continued to knock on the door. Uh, one of those you know, chances that we created came from Partey, who, after nutmegging Bernardo Silva, played a nice through ball to Bartnelli, who took on Cancelo and toe-poked a shot with his right foot from a tight angle. Odegaard, you know, was made made a lovely run into the box and was calling for the ball. And if Martinelli had found him, that could have been an easier chance than Martinelli had. But the signs were there, and we were causing City problems. Eventually, those problems we were causing resulted in a goal, with Odegaard shifting the ball out to Tierney, who made a darting run forward and played the ball across the ground into a dangerous area in the box. And none other than Bukayo Saka was on the end of it, who I thought was going to, you know, curl it into the far corner, but instead showed lovely technique to hit a sweet finish low and to the right of Edison. I thought the pick out by Tierney was excellent, and he had a lot of success going forward, getting crosses in after getting past Cancelo, but this was a clever pass to find Saka. That goal was actually the first goal we'd scored against Man City in nine consecutive Premier League games. 
let's just let that stat sink in for a second. I mean, it, it is pretty damning when you when you when you hear it. So to get on the score sheet against Man City just felt very good. I know, you know that that doesn't mean much again. But when you're so used to getting smashed by a team, just scoring is a feat in itself. Uh, I will also note that the goal that City conceded was only the second time that they've conceded in the first half of a Premier League game this season. So they are by no means an easy team to score against early on in the game. The finish from Saka was just exceptional. Uh, It really just seemed like a strike from a player brimming in confidence, and that goal makes it four in three Premier League games, which takes him up to six for the season in the Prem. And he's already beaten his tally of five last season, which... You know, with about 18 games to play or so, uh, he has a real good chance of ending up in double figures. On the subject of Saka, I also want to highlight what I thought was uh, both a bit of an amusing moment, but also one which, you know, displays the threat, or displayed the threat that Saka possesses. And that was early in the second half where Saka was basically triple teamed, almost quadruple teamed. Don't know if that's even a thing, but I felt like I was watching a Golden State Warriors game for a second because Saka had literally just picked up the ball on the right wing and he had players swarming to him instantly, which is exactly the kind of defensive attention that Steph Curry gets in the NBA as soon as he steps past half court. Anyways, I digress. Arteta has you know, talked about the growing connection between the supporters and the players recently, and that was quite obvious, I thought, in Saka's celebrations where you see Saka running into the crowd and you know people cheering him, hugging him. It was amazing to see. The atmosphere throughout the entire game, I thought, was great and no doubt helped buoy the players on. In our good attacking moments, I thought Lacazette, as he has been in these recent run of games, was vital he exhibited his skill set to fine effect and you know has just done what he's been doing recently dropping deep linking the play and he had a notable moment uh just before the end of the first half where he dropped deep into midfield to receive a Tomiyasu pass and Diaz had you know, pressured him right near the halfway line but Lacazette was able to just turn and evade that pressure uh, get the ball to Saka who played it back to Lacazette uh, and Lacazette worked the ball into Martinelli on the wing, who unfortunately just fired high and wide from his curled effort. Uh, our discipline defending in a 4-4-2 with you know, Odegaard and Lacazette, the two furthest forward, continued to prove fruitful, as just before half-time, a clumsy pass from Bernardo Silva found Martinelli, who from you know well inside our half got away from Cancelo, uh, and decided to go it alone, getting past Diaz, uh, and tried to score with his left foot this time, but from a tight angle. Odegaard, again, had made a lovely run and was in a lot of space in the center of the box. So, again, if Martinelli had got his head up and found him, that could have been 2-0, and, you know, we could have been talking about this game a lot differently. A 1-0 lead against City, just it doesn't seem like a lead at all when you're playing them, and so it proved to be. Uh, honestly, I'd say that was probably the only slight downside to Martinelli's performance. He just couldn't convert when he got into those positions or find the right pass. But his pressing was pivotal for keeping City penned in their half and helped us win the ball back high on many occasions. 
the kid is so direct and positive and every time he gets the ball, you feel like he can make something out of it. Okay, now that I've spoken about the positives, I do want to discuss the controversies, which uh, actually came, one of them came early in the game, well before we scored our goal. Uh, A lot of the time, the passes into the centre-backs weren't on due to City's press, so Ramsdale had to go long, and we got to see his excellent distribution when he found Martinelli with a long ball, who plucked the ball out of the sky delightfully and started running at Cancelo. Our attackers provided support, and Martinelli cut the ball back to play it to Lacazette, who shifted to, to his right foot and found Odegaard, and it looked like Odegaard had, you know, just taken a slightly heavy touch and the chance had gone begging, uh, giving Edison just enough time to get to the ball, but Odegaard went down. And when watching it live, I wasn't too sure which way it was going to go, but once the replays were on, for me, I felt like Odegaard had got to the ball first based on the angle from the side of the pitch. But when they did the VAR checking of the penalty, one of those angles they used, I think, was from behind the goal, And from that angle, it looked like Edison just made it to the ball. However, that view and another one of the angles they were using, you know, they weren't, they were a bit obscure. They weren't super clear. So if you are operating VAR, surely you have to make use of the best angle that gives you the clearest view. And from the angle I saw, you can see Odegaard just stick out his left boot to take the ball away from Edison. And Edison's outstretched left boot catches Odegaard. So, you know, should be a pen. However, I've seen this this replay so many times in slow-mo now. And from that same angle, it, it, you could also argue that Odegaard's foot hits Edison before he shields the ball. And so you could argue for a foul on Edison. But the replays were a bit tricky to get to a conclusive decision. But I... You know, I probably still would have given it, but the referee said it was, you know, not a penalty. Uh, But the one thing I was surprised about was the ref was not told to go and look at the penalty on the screen and, you know, conduct an on-field review. And, you know, in the later penalty decision, which we will discuss, he was. So that's, you know, the inconsistency with VAR that, you know, frustrates fans. Uh, Part of the frustration also you know, felt was that Stuart Atwell, the referee, appeared very trigger-happy to dish out yellow cards for us, but Man City and Rodri in particular managed to escape punishment for a number of tackles. Some of them, you know, were a bit 50-50, but some I thought he should have seen yellow earlier than he did. Uh, When he finally did get a yellow card, it was in the 92nd minute, not for dragging down Lacazette, which wasn't even called for a foul, by the way, or him kicking Saka's calf from behind and hacking him down after Saka squeezed the ball in between him and Ake. It was for celebrating with his top off. I mean, seriously. When Odegaard came off the pitch in the second half, you could see he was visibly frustrated, saying and gesturing, three times to the official on the sideline, which it must have been referencing the fouls that Rodri had gotten away with and not been booked, and some, you know, without a foul even being called. And surprise, surprise, guess who seconds later barged into Lacazette and somehow again escaped a booking? Yep, you guessed right, it was Rodri, Uh, which, you know, the Arsenal players rightly protest and were furious at, and I thought, finally, Stuart Atwell, you know, has given in, he's made right call, He's brought out the yellow card, 
And then he awarded it to Bukayo Saka. And it looked like all that Saka did really was just protest what an awful decision the ref made and the, you know, the inconsistencies with his refereeing. But, you know, then we come on to the other major, you know, contentious decision where, uh, and game-changing moment, essentially, where Bernardo Silva picks up the ball and it looks like, you know, he was going to cut in on his left foot, but instead he tries to get past Shaka on the outside we've seen you know these sort of plays countless times and when I first saw it it looked like there was a bit of contact from Jacker from his left leg uh, but what I thought you know would save us was there was almost a delayed reaction from Bernardo Silva where he you know sort of realized oh Jack has got his leg out here if I go down I'll get the pen so I was glad to see the referee not giving that because it did look like simulation but then it went to VAR, and when the VAR replay came came in, I saw Jacques' leg catch him, and th- after that, there was also the tugging of the shirt uh, just before Silver went down or whilst he was going down, and it was obvious then that it was going to be overturned because although you know Silver does exaggerate the contact, Jacques gives the referee a decision to make by the outstretched leg or VAR a decision to make, and the tugging of the shirt just doesn't help things so I think the referee made a correct decision in this instance in overturning the on-field decision but here is where some more of the inconsistencies come in Uh, in this case the referee was told to conduct an on-field review but in our penalty appeal he wasn't the initial decision by the referee was also deemed a clear and obvious error and hence the decision was overturned and Man City were awarded the penalty but after watching our penalty, which was not given, and City's was, which was given, I a have no idea how the referee was not told to see the screen for our penalty, uh, and b cannot explain how a referee can deem the Odegaard no penalty call as not clear and obvious, yet the Bernardo penalty call clear and obvious. For me, if the penalty on Bernardo was a clear and obvious error by the referee, then so is the one on Odegaard in the first half. This inconsistency in applying VAR and what should be checked by the referee on the pitch, even what constitutes a clear and obvious error, is just too subjective and that, coupled with poor officiating, is ruining games. Uh, there was a big delay between the time the penalty was given and Mares eventually converting the penalty, with a lot of our players complaining at the referee. And then straight after they scored, it looked like we come back with an immediate response because a header from Partey found Lacazette who's uh, flicked it back with his head also and you know toward their goal and it looked like Laporte was gesturing for Edison to stay back so he could header it back to Edison but Edison rushed out and Laporte's cushioned header went over the head of Edison but fortunately for City Ake just managed to get there in time and clear the ball off the line the clearance actually fell to Martinelli in the box on his left foot, who should have scored off the rebound, but hit the outside of the post, and you just felt that that was going to cost us as it happened. Uh, and it's it, that's another one of those game-changing moments where you know you have to take those chances, especially against a team like City, and especially with what happened, you know, a few minutes after, which we will get onto, but. Uh, I do want to just quickly say that something that strange that happened in that moment was the referee rushed out into our box. I mean, in, into the box um, that we were attacking to as if he was looking to clear the ball himself. 
I couldn't understand that when I saw the replay. Um, I, I guess he was, you know, trying to make sure or check if the ball was going to cross the line, but he, you know, we, we have goal line technology now. That's why we have the technology. You, you don't need to check that yourself. Uh, I guess maybe that's out of habit from you know, pre years ago, but it's still not necessary. And the ref shouldn't be in the penalty box in a moment like that because when a player makes a sliding goal line clearance, you can't hoof the ball out of play or find a teammate. You just got to hope the ball doesn't land near an attacker. And the referee's eagerness to check if the ball crossed the line meant that he was standing just in front of Martinelli before Martinelli got the ball. And whilst, you know, he still should have done better and he should have scored, essentially, uh, things like that don't help and honestly shouldn't happen. Uh, But yeah, as I mentioned, it was a game-changing moment because just, you know, from that, you know, we missed that chance and then it was City's goal kick and from, you know, that very same goal kick, Edison's long ball forward found Gabriel Jesus who chested the ball and spun past Gabriel around the halfway line and Gabriel sort of wrapped his hands on Jesus to stop him and look, it's... It's not the biggest contact in the world, but, you know, maybe a slightly soft yellow card, but it probably, you know, it probably was a yellow card. And I, I thought for a second it was a, a straight red because, you know, when it cut back to the game from the goal kick, all I saw was the red go up. Uh, I hadn't actually realized that Gabriel had been given a yellow earlier. Um, and the first yellow that Gabriel got, I saw people saying it was because he scuffed the penalty spot before Mares took it which, you know, that would have just been very silly. But I've subsequently seen a video on Twitter where Gabriel was still arguing with the referee for giving the penalty, and it looks like he was booked for dissent, which, you know, I can understand the frustration, but I think that just points or suggests an inexperience and rash decision-making that I guess you can probably expect in a young side. Uh, in the moment, I was really frustrated with the sending off, though, because it, it just felt like all the decisions were going against us. But I understand why it was given as a yellow card, and it was very poor from Gabriel, as you know, Gabriel Jesus wasn't going anywhere quickly, despite you know getting past uh, Gabriel. Partey was right there, and Tommy Asu, White, and Tierney were all back as well. Uh, I don't know if it was a lapse of concentration or maybe just anger from decisions not going our way, but ultimately both bookings from Gabriel were totally avoidable. And I think you, you can probably, as I mentioned, chalk it down to being a young team who perhaps are a little hot-headed, don't know how to manage the game yet, and don't have the you know the maturity in these moments against the best sides. And ultimately, I can't really fault that because, look, it's part of the development of this side we just need to learn from those mistakes. To get anything from Man City, let alone beat them, you need all your players on the pitch. And this is the second time this season that we've gone down to 10 men playing against them. So, you know, it, it's always going to be uh, tough. And once the sending off happened, the best we could hope for was to hang on for the draw. Now, as you'd expect, Man City kept even more of the ball after the sending off, but we were doing well, I thought, to prevent them from having any clear-cut opportunities. The red card meant that we sacrificed an attacker in Odegaard and brought on holding to try and hold on to the 1-1. Uh, we dropped into a back five with Xhaka alongside White and holding at the back. 
Uh, went down to 10 men. I, I thought we fought pretty well. Partey even had a moment where we, you know, ran from inside our own half all the way to City's box and played a ball into the area, but Martinelli just wasn't able to get on the end of it. City were being very patient when we when we went down to 10, but uh, we stayed compact and forced City out wide. We somehow made it through the 90 minutes of regular time. But when I saw the six minutes of added time, injury time, stoppage time, whatever you want to call it, I started to feel a bit of dread creeping in. And it it kind of just started to feel like a Man City winner was inevitable. And so it came from KDB playing a searching ball into the box and Holdings clearance or heading clearance away ended up in the penalty area. And we just got unlucky here. Laporte's effort deflected off of Ben White and that found its way to Rodri, who smashed it past Ramsdale. Uh, It was a crushing way to end the game. And at full time, you could see the effort expended with Ben White lying across the floor, just looking spent. Uh, Xhaka and Ramsdale also looked absolutely gutted. It was really nice in that moment to hear the Arsenal fans getting behind the team and cheering them and appreciating their efforts, you know, once the full-time whistle went, uh, despite the loss. When the game was 11 v 11, though, I'd say that we we were comfortably the better side. And when we went down to 10, it wasn't like City were, you know, manufacturing quality chance after quality chance, but in the end, their, their pressure told on our defense and it wasn't meant to be and that extends City's lead to 11 points in the Premier League at the time of recording and 11 wins in a row in the Premier League for them which is some stat sorry the salt levels on this podcast have exceeded their threshold so probably should praise Man City now so congrats to City they did show you know premiership medal and what you need to to get over the line in the Premier League you need to even when you're not at your best win those those games where your team has you on the back foot but you still manage to overcome and persevere and that's exactly what they did uh now that I've you know been reflecting on the game I'd say that the first half was probably the best first half performance I've seen from us under Arteta and one of the best performances we've had at the Emirates in years, first half especially. So I, I know at the Emirates against big teams, we, we've had some great matches in recent years. I'm thinking the first half blitzes against Man United in the 15-16 season and another against Chelsea the following season in their title-winning year. And we even had one of those first half flurries this season against Tottenham, but this game felt more impressive when you take into account the opposition we were facing, despite the fact that we lost. Uh, right now, I'm still bitterly disappointed with the way the match ended. And evaluating the whole game, I feel we are extremely unlucky to not have come away with at least a point. But it's a loss that doesn't feel like a loss almost, which sounds strange to say when you've conceded a late winner after scrapping and fighting with 10 men. But we saw signs, not even signs, we saw, we, we, well, we had tangible evidence about what this team can do and a clear identity of what we wanted to do both in and out of possession. And we had Man City on the back foot. You could see from City celebrations at the end of the match how important the victory was for them. 
in keeping their lead atop the Premier League. And while some of that was probably the pure elation of winning when not at their best, and of course the late winner, I'm sure some of that was their players feeling like they got away with one because we gave them a proper game and really challenged them throughout. I heard uh, Pep's comments after the game, and he did say that we were better, or you know, I didn't, maybe not explicitly we were the better team, but it sounded like he was saying you know we were the better team. And he he's praised us a few times in the past, and I don't know how in the, in those occasions he they've usually just batted us, or it's before a game where they then go on to beat us comfortably. But today that praise feels genuine and warranted and you know the pra- the players deserve all the praise that they get really uh, so going forward I'm hoping the lads keep their heads up as we go on into another big game midweek in the Carabao Cup first leg semi-final against Liverpool at home I say big game fully knowing that some fans don't necessarily see the Carabao Cup like that you know they don't view it as a big competition but a chance to win a cup is never something I like to sneer at and I think we have a real shot this year, especially with City out of the competition, which they feels like they win every single year. And we've got Liverpool, who by no means, you know, that none of the teams left in the competition, Tottenham, Chelsea, Liverpool, are, you know, teams that you'd want to face. But something that may be going in our favour is Klopp tends to prioritise the Premier League and the Champions League. So I am hoping for some heavy rotation uh, particularly because they have a tough game against Chelsea just a few days before the cup game where they'll have to pick up three points if they want to stay in contention for the title. And not to mention some of Liverpool's important players in Salah, Mane and Keita will be missing. So, uh, you know, of course they're going to AFCON. So that's something we should be looking to capitalise on. We will also have a notable absentee in Thomas Partey, which is a real shame because he's really starting to deliver excellent performances game after game now and it looks like the injury concerns and niggles that he was having that was sort of halting or stop starting his progress has really um well it's disappeared and it's just allowed him to go on a good run now and those problems are behind him essentially i expect uh sammy lakonga to come in for him he hasn't played in a in a little bit and uh it could be good to... I don't know how much rotation we're going to see. I think there will definitely be some rotation because, you know, they the players expended a lot of effort in the City game. But I think it's important that we, we get the, the win at Emirates uh, before going to the second leg. And I think there is a good chance for more rotation in the FA Cup game rather than this EFL Cup semi-final. So I think, you know, play... I think we should still go into this game with a very a strong team with, you know, a few changes here and there. Maybe Smith Rowe in for Martinelli. Uh, maybe, I was going to say Tavares in for Tierney, but I think we, we need Tierney. Um, so largely full strength side, and then we can rest more of the players in the FA Cup third round fixture against Nottingham Forest just a few days after uh, the Liverpool game. But yeah, whilst I mentioned that Liverpool will probably... You know, employ a lot of rotation. Anfield is a tough, tough place to go to uh, for, the, for the second leg, which you know we got first-hand evidence of that last season when they beat us on penalties in the same competition with 
a bunch of kids in the starting lineup. So it's crucial, I think, that we build a nice lead in the home leg before going to Anfield because I just find it tricky to see us being a Liverpool side away from home, even one missing their big hitters and heavily rotated. Well, anyway, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks very much for listening to the Arsenal One Game at a Time podcast. I've been your host, Dylan. And if you want to receive updates on the podcast, please follow the Twitter account at ArsenalOGAT. And yeah, see you on the next one.